Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of February 21st, 2023. So we march along in this year uh, of comics. And yeah, Rocky and I were just talking before we started recording. Pretty strong week from DC. A couple of fantastic books, a couple of fantastic moments. So overall, it, it's, it was good. And that's a good thing because I really do feel like the big two they're they're losing ground. I mean, we, we've talked about it before. They're losing ground to independent stuff, which is good. You know that we're getting a diversity of stories and what have you. But man, never. I, I was just doing my pre-order for the month of April, I guess it is, over the weekend, and never have the big two felt so homogenized, right? So directionless. Yeah. Where they're just like throwing up generic stories. Uh, we'll talk about it when we talk about uh, Lazarus Planet a little bit with all these events and the way they're structured now, man, the big two, if they don't, they, they, I don't know what they need. It's almost like they need a new person in charge to bring some fresh energy. Um, they need a shakeup, I would say. Uh, and I say that saying that, yeah, this was a good week for DC, a lot of great stories. And these are characters we love and we're invested in them when we run, we want to read good stories about them. But in terms of something that's really new and fresh and groundbreaking, it, it's a little too far, you know, it's a little too far in between. Like it's a little too rare to get a moment where you're just like, Holy crap. We do. We did have one of those moments for me this week though. We'll definitely talk about it. But anyway, um, what'd you think Rocky? Pretty solid week, right? Uh, well, generally speaking, it's a solid week. Cause I was, I was happy with world's finest Superman, Clayface and uh, flash again and JC, uh, JCPD, uh, the blue wall. I really enjoyed that. And, and I even enjoyed, I enjoyed Catwoman and black Adam. Uh, but the, uh, Nightwing was a little bit of a downer to me and wonder woman and uh, space age was a little disappointing, but uh you know, but still, uh, the vast majority I enjoyed this week. But I, and I do agree with you overall that on my pull list as well. I will just quickly add that I I also find that I'm I don't collect. I no longer collect any Marvel for the first time in that's got to be thirty years. Like I I don't collect no Marvel anymore. I thought Daredevil was the last one, and I stopped collecting that about six months ago. And so no Marvel, and I still collect DC, but the vast majority is is independent, and I'm starting to enjoy. Uh, frankly, the best stories I'm reading are all independent. I have to, I have to say, and occasionally here we'll get some really uh, stories that the best stories are the ones that no one's reading, like JCPD, The Blue Wall, and <laughs> I, I enjoyed Clayface. But you know, thank God for Mark Wade and some inspiration by Joshua Williamson from time to time, and Jeremy Adams. They're still passionate writers out there, but uh, you know, and I'll give Tom Taylor some cred too. So, but uh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll we'll get into it. Yeah, for sure. So let's kick it off with Batman One Bad Day, Clayface, continuing these One Bad Day one-shots. This one's written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Zermonico is the artist, Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, some great covers here. The Jim Lee cover, you know, obviously Jim Lee, Batman, Clayface, it's fantastic. I also, the Brian Boland cover was interesting. Clayface, almost body horror, I guess you'd say. Um <laughs> But what I really loved about this, so th this this writing duo, if you're not familiar, they've been around for a while. I feel like they're finally coming into their own. They're finally getting their due. For a long time with DC, they were a writing duo that would be put on a book that was canceled. So this book's canceled. It's going to run out three more issues. Let's throw these guys on there and let them finish it out. And that was kind of their, their thing, what they were known for. 
Um, but they put in their dues and obviously they were pitching on, you know, series they wanted to develop and be on for long runs, you know, all during this time. But they could be counted on to show up for a feeling issue or feeling arc. And, you know, it, it's a good lesson in, you know, when you're trying to break in, say yes, right? Like if an editor asks you, can you do this? Can you do that? Just say yes. Figure it out as you go along. Um, and it's not just comics, right? Like these, they're a writing team and they've pitched for years, pitched stories around Hollywood for movies and television shows and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I say all that to say they're coming at this Batman uh, Clayface One Bad Day story with experience, right? Basil Carlo, Clayface himself, frustrated actor, never, you know, got the break he felt he deserved. And when Jackson, Lansing and Colin Kelly tell this story, they're coming at it from their own experience, from their own perspective, right? Of going around Hollywood and, you know, getting in the door and passing one test only to be failed at the, you know, pass on to the next person and then that person fails you. And the next time maybe you take one more step and then that person fails you. And it's always one more thing, right? Like it's always, well, we need you to do this. And then you do that. And, well, now we need you to do this. And it, it's never ending, right? And it's this treadmill. It's this wall that you can never break through. Every time you take a step forward and you think you've reached the finish line, they move the goalposts, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, but these guys are coming at it from real world experience, having lived through this. And when they're on the show a few months ago, talking about their Star Trek series over at IDW, they were taught, they mentioned this book and about how this was kind of cathartic for them to really put everything they'd been through with Hollywood for the last decade into a story. And you've, they've done a fantastic job. You really get this sense of frustration, not that you, justify what Clayface does here. And when he kills innocent people, you know, he's doing wrong and you, you know, you condemn him for that, but you understand his motivation. And that's, I think where Kelly and Lansing have done a fantastic job with the story. Like you understand with everything Clayface has gone through back in Gotham city and him leaving that behind to go out to Hollywood and, and, you know, restart his acting career. He wants it to work. His heart's in the right place, but you know, once he starts getting rejected, he immediately crosses the line, right? He falls back into the, those supervillain tendencies. And uh, it, it, it just really, really works. I thought the art by Zermanico was fantastic. The colors by Fajardo Jr. were done really, really well. And one thing I'll say about this, probably for the first time since the first Batman One Day story we had, which was the Riddler story from uh, King and Garrett's, this is the 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 most compelling read, right? Like that one was a real page turner with Riddler. You wanted to see what was going to happen. Not that the others in between have been bad, but this was the first time since that that initial one with Riddler, where like before I knew it, it was over. Like it, the narrative, the momentum that the narrative, the structure, the story structure that the writers use it really propels the story forward and it's over before you know it. And you're like, wow, that was really, really good. So I really enjoyed it for me. This is probably the second best one after the Riddler. So what were your thoughts? Oh, I, I, I love this one. And uh, this is, uh, this is, I think this is, this has got to be probably one of the best Clayface stories I've ever read. And I, and I, I can't believe Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing wrote it. 
I, I got to be honest because I often find that their writing is. I often find it's a little bit generic. It's never really blown me away. They're they're usually a creative team that's called in at the last minute to finish a book. You know, when a big writer goes off a book and just before a book gets canceled, they put Lansing and Kelly on it. And I almost felt kind of sorry for them in a way. And uh, it's really nice to see them sort of, uh, it was, I I listened to your interview. I'm glad to see they're having success at IDW, Star Trek uh, comics. And, but this here. Not not to interrupt, but I will also say, I know you're not reading any Marvel right now. Their Captain America run right now is fantastic as well. And again, it shows when they're not having to come in and pinch hit, like you said, to finish off a series, when they get to run with their own ideas, Mm -hmm. it works fantastic. Well, uh, I've got to tell you then, uh, having said that, I probably owe, uh, maybe I should be checking out my digital copies of Captain America. I'll probably do that uh, based on that recommendation. I will. Uh, Because based on this, I'm very impressed. I, I absolutely love how they, you know, one of the central complaints that we've had with One Bad Day, Batman One Bad Day as a general concept is that with the exception of the Riddler story about Tom King, which was my favorite so far and yours as well, is that it seems like the writers didn't really understand that they weren't given the same homework assignments, so to speak, that, you know, it was supposed to be like one bad day, just like just killing joke wise. Like what was the like almost like the final what would be the final Clayface story, the final Bane story, the final and not all of them really seem to. Uh, perform but but this is one where it's what's what's amazing about this is that Clayface of course uh, his Basil Carlo he's an actor he's a failed actor but he goes to Hollywood and he tries out for the part of the Joker in the movie they're they're actually filming the movie a killing joke <laughs> and they're they're and he tries out for the role of the person that would become the Joker He's actually trying out for the role in the Killing Joke movie. And he ends up, uh, you know, uh, and, and it's in his conversations first with the with the, with his agent. Uh, and his agent tells him, well, you know, you, you, you do good. Just do your best. And then and then he goes, he tries out for the role. The director tells him, well, they, they need him. They want him to, you know, they, they have some issues with how he's performing it. But the problem with Basil Carlo is that he's always looking for feedback. And when they give him feedback that he doesn't like, he thinks that they're wrong. And he just and he unfortunately, he ends up killing everyone here. And in fact, one of the one of the one of the covers that actually is symbolic of this story. The alternate cover is the one that looks like a movie uh, poster that says Basil Carlo is Clayface in Batman One Bad Day with Basil Carlo and introducing Basil Carlo producer basil carlo director basil carlo like all the actors are clayface because he's he literally anyone that would be part of this movie they're not good enough because they're not basil carlo and uh, that's that's ultimately the the problem here and it all it's all wrapped up so beautifully because it's literally basil carlo frustrated with hollywood and you see the the ups and downs through the various characters that are introduced we're introduced to his agent. Uh, uh, we're introduced to uh, two of his friends, uh, Corey, who gets the role of the Joker uh, over him, and he ends up killing his own friend. And then he, he meets another uh, woman by the name of Kat. She's a scriptwriter. These are all up-and-coming young actors, young Hollywood uh future stars who are doing their best to make it in Hollywood, and Basil Carlo befriends them. And, of course, you don't really realize it until the end as the story moves forward as you get to know these people and as their as their lives are taken by basil there's a sense of tragedy to it and 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 what i love about this is that it's among many things is that ultimately he ends up taking over the identity of 
a Hollywood producer and he has a party in this producer's home and he and he invites his two friends and Bruce Wayne of all people shows up at the party and of course you know why Bruce Wayne must be there because Bruce Wayne's on the tail on the trail of Clayface and the way it all plays out is ultimately Batman has to take Clayface down and and as he says to him you know you, you killed nine people in one day <laughs> like nine people in one day and and he, as Batman says to him, he says, it's, it was their story, Basil. You're just acting. And that's the tragedy of Clayface. And that's what drives home here. And particularly at the end where, where Clayface is in prison and he's, and all he can do is think about an imaginary conversation that he's having about how he's asking for feedback. Give me some feedback because he thinks he's such a good actor. But the irony is, is that he's one of those people that you can't give feedback to because if you give him the wrong kind of feedback, he'll literally kill you. That's Clayface. That's the, the extent of his dysfunction and his and his his mental <laughs> his, his state of mind. And it, I thought this was just this perfectly encapsulated the the, the psychic. Sc- Absolute, the mental illness, whatever the hell it is, uh, the psychopathy of Clayface, this encapsulates his character perfectly. In, in many ways, this is almost like an origin for him, even though it's not, but it's it, it, it highlights all the, the flaws of Clayface that make him the tragic and truly deadly and horrifying character that he is. And this just works so, so well. I'm almost tempted. Like, I'm... You know what? I, I could almost, I could almost put this on par with uh, Tom King's Riddler, Batman One Mad Day. That's how good I think this one is, and I, I, I think that, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm impressed. I'm still sort of processing it because I, I just, I re- read it like three times, and I'm just like, I got more impressed every time I read it. But no, very, very good. I, I would give it a solid nine out of ten. I, I love this. Yeah, this. I, I agree. It- definitely the best Clayface story I've ever read. Uh, Kelly and Lansing demonstrate a understanding of who Basil Carlo is better than anybody else. Like it was what Tynan did in the DC detective run was, was okay. Um, team um, was interesting. I think it's even better than that. Okay, I'm not. Uh, all right. So let's move on. Lazarus Planet Omega number one is up next from writer Mark Wade. Ricardo Federici and Mike Perkins are the artists. We have Brad Anderson on color, Steve Wands on letters. Um, I, I I don't know exactly how to how to rate this one. Right? Like, it's is it a satisfying ending? Yes, I think it's a satisfying ending. Does it does it wrap up the story? Does it answer the questions? Yes, it does. The problems I have with this are more kind of systemic of the way DC is structuring their events now. They've done it maybe since Dark Knight's death metal started. They started doing this thing where it's a limited number of issues for the main series or spine series or whatever you want to call it. And then they make all these series of one shots and, you know, one or two, three issue mini series, what have you. I wish they would stop doing that. Right. Um, and I get why they do because you don't have to buy everything to get this whole story. And a lot of times the, the one shots or the little minis are anthologies and they're giving 
other creators, creators that don't have that much experience, a chance to dip their toe into the, the DC universe and kind of show editors what they can. You know, how can they tie in? How can they work with others? How can they meet a deadline and all that stuff? And I, I get that there's worth for that. But the worth in that is in the is for the creators that are proving themselves to DC and for the editorial staff at DC to, you know, vet these um, aspiring comic book creators and see, you know, how they do. The worth for us as readers, it leaves a little bit to be desired because it ends up feeling so disjointed. Like we have talked throughout, and Rocky was so excited for Lazarus Planet. And we talked throughout about how kind of disappointing and unnecessary a lot of these tie-ins have been and how you just don't need to read them to get the whole story. So here we have supposedly the end of the story, like the resolution, right? Except not really because there's still some loose ends to be tied up in monkey prints and what have you. And there's still some of the other tie-in series that haven't had their last issues yet. So I question the timing of this coming now as opposed to coming later. Um, but it ends up feeling like all you really need to read if you want to know what's going on with Lazarus Planet is Lazarus Planet Alpha and Lazarus Planet Omega. For the most part, I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the story. Yeah. Well, is- you know, it, it ends in Batman and Robin number five at the end of this. It says. Right. So it's that. It's, yeah. Yeah. So and, well, well, and then there's there's the monkey prince part and it says, you know, monkey prince number 12 for that. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, you're getting 80 to 90 percent of the story in these two issues. But yet, if you want to have more context and a, a richer, fuller story, you do need to read some of the other stuff. It does bring in, you know, that other 10 percent. But. Again, we're talking about, what, 20, 30 other issues of comics, probably closer to 20 than 30, that's bringing in the other 10%. So when you think about story value and you know value for your comic dollar, that's not a great percentage, right? You're getting 80 to 90% of the story in Lazarus Planet Alpha and Omega. You're getting the other 10% of story in, in all the rest. So what I'm saying is, don't structure it this way. Make Lazarus Planet Omega a six-issue series. Take the flavor and context and some of the great ideas that are in some of those other miniseries and one-shots and incorporate them into that six-issue Lazarus Planet series overall and give us 100% in six issues without having to tie in. If you want to cross over into you know, the main Superman title or the main Batman title or what have you, you can do that. This is the way events used to be. And, you know, not to sound like, you know, get off my lawn or whatever, but I'm having a hard time with the way these things are structured now because it feels like we get a lot of fluff and a lot of unnecessary stories that are only tangentially related. Like I think Rocky mentioned it last episode of the episode before where literally we had a story. It might've been the Harley, Harley Quinn story where the, literally the only tie in was the sky was green, right? And there was green rain falling. Um, <laughs> or maybe it was last week when we t- did the, the Huntress story where she's battling through um, Arkham tower. Arkham Towers, was, Cause yeah. yeah, some, some green rain drops in on some unknown cell down in the basement. You know, when we get to the end of the story, it's like the, um, and again, Crisis on Infinite Earths was the first big mega crossover where, some, yeah, some of those tie-ins way back when, it was a panel or two where the sky was red and the, that, you know, that was the tie-in. They got the Crisis trade dress. So it's not a new problem necessarily, 
but it's gotten really bad lately and uh, I didn't I didn't especially care f- for the way that this has been been structured as far as the story itself I mean again it's it's sort of a paint by numbers generic story with uh, King Firebull and monkey prince and, and what have you uh, I will say as much as I've been enjoying enjoying the monkey prince series itself, I kind of enjoyed Monkey Prince here in the hands of Mark Wade and with the Federici art because he he doesn't feel so much like the sort of wacky, crazy, juvenile type hero that we've gotten in his own series. He comes across as a little more sane, a little more serious, a little more mature as a hero in this. And it shows the potential that that character has, which I really, really enjoyed. So I thought that was fantastic. I thought the art by Federici was fantastic. Uh, and then there is the backup story that's giving us some more of the history of King Firebull and Nezhan, what have you. Um, and so that that backup story is by uh, a lot of the same creative team you have on the Monkey Print series with writer Gene Luen Yang, Sebastian Cheng on colors. Uh, it is Billy Tan doing the line work and Seda Temafonte on letters. Um, but that helps add some context as well. So, yeah, um, I, you know, as much as I don't care for the way things are structured. I do feel like the actual Lazarus planet alpha and last actual Lazarus planet Omega, where you get, like I said, 80 to 90% of the story. I actually enjoyed them more than I expected to. Uh, Cause there's not, not that they're not good stories or, or it's not an interesting event. Um, it was a little more straightforward than I expected to be. Usually when it comes to magic, the thing that I don't like about it, I've said this before is how, a writer can, you know, write himself into a corner or, you know, set things up a certain way where you think the heroes are going to to lose and there's no way out of it. And then they just snap their fingers or have the perfect spell to perfect time. And it doesn't feel earned. Right. Um, that's not the case here. Uh, and I, I give credit to Mark Wade, the writer, for making it feel like the win was earned. Um, and even though the the heroes won basically uh, it wasn't a clean win and there's going to be consequences to, to come. So uh, yeah, I mean, for me, the Mark Wade writing and getting that sense of stakes across and the Federici art, which um, I know he doesn't do a lot of interior work because he's, his stuff so gorgeous and detailed. It, it probably takes him too long, but yeah, there were, there were some scenes here um, that were just fantastic. I really, especially love, um, there's a full page splash of Zatanna, like weaving these spells and she's looking all beautiful and powerful and sexy. And Alan Scott's in the background holding his lantern. And, uh, man, I just love that page. So anyway, overall, uh, I thought this was a decent book, better than average, but, and I will say the event was probably a little a bit above average for me, but the, I got to give DC an F on the, the structure of this event stop structuring events like this. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It, it it's, there's too much fluff. Um, it, it just, it's not working. Do you need to do it differently? I don't, and I can't imagine it's selling that well, right? Who's, who's going, Oh, I got to buy every <clears throat> Lazarus. So with only a bookend, right? Lazarus planet alpha and Omega who is sucked yeah. in so from alpha that they go, Oh, I got to buy every Lazarus. You're not even giving people a chance to get invested in the story. Because the main series is only two issues, two yeah. one shots. Uh, I don't care for it at all. So, anyway, I'll stop yeah. ranting. 
uh, let you give us your thoughts. Well, from a storytelling point of view, if they would have actually, if Lazarus Planet would uh, would have actually been a story that 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 chronologically made sense, it would be okay. If it went, you know, Lazarus Planet Alpha was a really good opening issue. Uh, I thought that was good. You didn't really need to know much about. What had come before it was adequately explained, and you could go from Lazarus Alpha right into the this this Lazarus Omega, and you basically, you know, you basically get an ending or defeat of uh, the Devil Nezha, and it, it, it at least it tells you you can go to Batman and Robin five, and then Monkey Prince twelve, but still it is a little bit disjointed. I agree that bloody hell we shouldn't have to be we shouldn't be led that astray and be led all over the place. These are these are. These are inexcusable mistakes. Uh, I mean, they've had plenty of time to get their act together. They've had, a, you know, frankly, I think editorially, DC's had a very bad last few years. And this is just not a sign that things are getting any better. And frankly, if you went from Lazarus Alpha and you love the story in Lazarus Alpha, and then you jump to Dark Fate and then Assault on Krypton, and then you would discover, I mean, it started characters that you have no idea who they are it uh, they're they're not connected at all to the story other than through Lazarus reign not particularly well written the art was phoned in in, in a lot of them in my opinion uh, this was not DC's best and this is supposed to be an event and this uh, frankly uh, now it's really good Lazarus Alpha and Lazarus Omega I enjoyed the story here, story here. I really love the and I love the art I mean uh, it, it's good the story go from Alpha to Omega to Batman and Robin, which I've already read, and Monkey Prince. This does wrap up well. This is a decent story. But God, when you collect this as a trade DC, please do not put any of the garbage of the Dark Fade and the Assault on Krypton in it. Just go, just collect uh, Alpha, Omega, Batman and Robin 5, and Monkey Prince 12. That's it. Don't put any of the other hogwash garbage in it. And it's garbage. Just let it, let it die. Just let it go by the wayside. That's my opinion. But anyways, this story, uh, I haven't even talked about the story yet. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's basically Black Alice getting her act together. Uh, great moments between Black Alice and Monkey Prince as she sort of comes into her own and finds her inner strength to overcome uh, the, the, uh, the, the manipulations of the Devil Nezha. And uh, the Spectre, she reinforces, she uh, reignites or revitalizes the power of the Spectre to help defeat uh, the Devil Nezha. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of uh, power shenanigans that are going on where uh, the heroes are deprived of their powers and then get each other's powers because magic is gone, is, is gone completely cha chaotically insane. And so there's all kinds of insane things that are happening and the art is truly fantastic and as you, you pointed out a gorgeous picture of Zatanna so I want to focus focusing on the story here I did enjoy this story and the only thing that tainted the story was the garbage that came before it and and I'm not talking about uh DC uh the Alpha comic, which was awesome. I had to openly try to ignore all the other irrelevant issues, and that's the sad part. But I am looking forward to how, you know, people who've just picked up Alpha and then jumped to Omega, you'll really enjoy this story. If you were unfortunately wasted your time and money and read the issues in between, you might skip this one because you're on a budget. And unfortunately, that would be wrong because this is actually the one that you'd want to get. Go from Alpha to Omega. The in-betweens were wrong. Shame on DC Editorial for getting it right. But kudos to the creative team for getting it right. And um, there's a, you know, and this does elevate Monkey Prince. And I think this, this, this should have been 
completely marketed 100% differently, frankly. This could have put Monkey Prince even more on the map. I think it does already. This is really a Monkey Prince kind of event. And it should have been, it should have just been marketed uh, differently. It should have been structured differently, as you said, whether it's a six issue series or whatever. But the way they did it, was was just not very well done but story-wise the story proper the story that actually deals with it i think is is worth reading and the story of monkey prince i encourage people to go pick up and read the 12 issues of monkey prince uh and certainly issues this continues into batman robin number five and monkey prince number 12 and it's i think it's worth reading not not Again, not the corollary, garbage, dark fate, assault on Krypton nonsense, but Alpha, Omega, Batman, Batman and Robin 5, and Monkey Prince 12, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, and it's too bad. I, you know, it's, I'm not discounting any of the hard work that anybody put in those other tie-ins, but it's just not, just not necessary. It's just not necessary. I mean, the DC is putting out, and we've talked about this before, right? Like we used to, I used to complain, hey, do more anthologies, give, uh, you know, other creators a chance. They're doing that, but they've, it's almost like they're trying to make up for last time. The pendulum has swung too far the other way. There's too many anthologies now. So too many backups and what have you. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Superman Space Age from writer Mark Russell. This is issue number three. Uh, Mike Allred is the artist. Laura Allred is the colorist. Dave Sharp on letters. This is almost like a... Um, you can compare it to what Marvel was doing um, when they had those, you know, in the through the decades, the the life story that Spider-Man life story, Fantastic Four life story. So the Superman Space Age supposed supposedly happening in in real time, covering decades. And from the beginning, Pir- a Pariah has shown up and told Superman, "Yeah, your version of Earth is going to die. Nothing I can do to stop it." And he's referencing all the way back to the original Crisis on Infinite Earths with the Antimon. So it's been an interesting take. Uh, you know, Mark Russell giving us a little bit more of a a realistic, what would supposedly be a realistic take on Superman and the Justice League with Mike Allred's art. Now, I'm not a fan of Allred's art. I, I love Mike Allred. He's such a nice guy. He's great with fans. He's very grateful, very humble, and he's got a great sense of storytelling. What I don't care for in his art is his line where he uses a very, very heavy line. And for me, it just makes his image images feel very, very static. Plus, he always draws the eye like eyebrows and eyes like so heavy. Like everybody has these really thick eyebrows. Um, and especially you can see it on a pariah. Like he's got these giant black circles around his eyes. And it just it's off putting to me. So um, while I think the visual storytelling is great the actual line work for me just doesn't uh doesn't work but mark russell's typical tongue-in-cheek sense of humor and sense of satire is here and that works really really well and the superman that that uh russell and allred give us here is very he's much closer to the superman from like all-star superman grant morrison than like the traditional superman you'd have in the regular dc books and and i do appreciate that i do appreciate that they make him super smart and he kind of takes himself at one point off the playing field leaves the justice league and kind of uses his intellect to accomplish what he needs to accomplish i won't spoil it um but i like that i i think that's really really interesting when he's off the 
stage, so to speak, it gives Batman a chance to step up. And I, I actually don't care for the visual look of Batman. Um, it's a very distinctive look for Mike already. I, I just don't care for it. Um, but it gives Batman a chance to sort of step up and, and almost be the, the star of the book for a little while. But I felt like the, what is supposed, what I think is supposed to be a very emotional scene with kind of the origin of this version of the Joker and a final confrontation with Bruce Wayne and Batman and the Joker. I think it's supposed to come across as very tragic and poignant. And it just felt so overwrought and overworked for me rather than like spontaneous or interesting. And I, I just did not care for that portion of the story at all. And for me, it brought this issue down. What I think would have been an above average issue and pushed it to below average for me. I just, I really disliked the Batman Joker portion of the story. And it has nothing to do with me being sick of Batman or being sick of Joker. It just, like I said, it felt so overwrought and heavy handed. And frankly, I, I come to expect better from Mark Russell. Usually his, I, I've never seen him do something like that, do something so cliched and, um, and just clumsy and clunky. Um, so I, th I thought that was un unfortunate because the rest of the story, the actual Superman portion of the story, when the anti-monitor does finally show up and this version of, um, uh, or this portion of the DC multiverse being destroyed and what the Superman does to preserve it. Like I really, really enjoyed all of that. Um, and, and again, even though this particular art style is not my favorite, I thought that it worked uh, for the story that they were telling. And, and overall, I think that the Superman space age would probably be pretty well in a trade. Um, but yeah, this was not my favorite of the, uh, of the three issues, mostly because of that Batman Joker, just that whole scene at the end, just, it just didn't work at all for me. I didn't care for it. So, uh, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I actually, <clears throat> I I'm going to give this. I before you started talking it was funny because I was giving this a uh, a generally a positive review in that I felt that at the end that the message of who Superman was did shine through at the end for me the last half of this book, uh, be, but I had to get back into it in the last probably half or third of it because the Batman portion did take me out. It, it was not necessary. It it wasn't necessary at all, even like it wasn't, I don't even think it kept, it wasn't even necessary for the theme. The entire, it, at least what, what resonated with me with this story was the sacrifice that Superman was making. Superman believes Pariah because from the very beginning of this story, Pariah keeps showing up in a bar in different decades, talking to Clark Kent saying, you know what? The world, your, your world's going to end. The universe is going to end. There's a crisis going on sooner or later. You know, your, your universe is nothing you can do about it. You're going to die. And even he's even interacted with Brainiac with a, a series of Brainiacs, almost like a council of Brainiacs. <laughs> We're telling him, yeah, we can't stop the anti-monitor sooner or later universe is going to die and so superman's been preparing for it though and he's creating a crystal and and much like the movie and again uh mark russell is boring probably from different plot points from various different stories about superman and superman's basically incorporating all the dna sequences on a quantum level of everyone on the planet with the idea being that if the planet's destroyed he's gonna what will survive is this is this quantum matrix of all the dna of all the human beings who who 
who lived just before they died and they can live on another planet. And that's ultimately how it ends. So it was sort of predictable in that respect. But it's 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 getting there that there was some I did feel some moments. It did have some moments of emotion. It, it hit me more because I, I did. I actually I, I do like Mike Elward's art. I'm a fan of his art. I, I love his Mad Men. Uh, but in, in any event, uh, I, I wish that uh, I don't understand why there was that detour with Batman. It had nothing to do with the story. We already the sacrifice we saw of Green Lantern held Jordan. We saw John Stewart step up to the plate here. Uh, I, I, I would have thought that a more appropriate person to maybe have make a sacrifice would have been Wonder Woman instead of Batman. We saw lots of Batman. The Joker here was a strange iteration. And for for it felt like almost half of this book was focused on Batman. Why? It's called Superman Space Age. What on earth are you telling us a Joker story for with Batman? I just I don't I don't understand. It was totally unnecessary. Absolutely has nothing to do with the end of the world and, and the message of, of of the sacrifice that that Superman makes. Uh, who ultimately Superman chooses to stay in his universe. He's like the captain going down with the ship. So Superman has the opportunity to take the Matrix and go to another universe and survive along with the DNA, which perfectly replicates all his, all his family, all his all the people on Earth. But he chooses to stay and and actually die. And ironically enough, Superman is the only one that dies because everyone else lives because of what he does with that matrix by giving it to another Superman in another universe so that that universe and, and his people can live on. And that's, so I really, really enjoyed that, that ending and how, and I thought that the ending was really good. And that ending, I think not to speak for you, Jace, but that's where I got sort of like the, the all-star Superman vibes that that was his sort of sacrifice. And, and so I'll give him credit for that. Cause I, I did get some feels out of reading this. I, I won't lie, but I do admit that the Batman thing, that uh, boy, some of it, it just took me out of the story. And, and even the first two issues, there were, there were segments of, of story uh, that were just not necessary. There was even some Lex Luthor moments that we just didn't really need to see, quite frankly. Although it was funny that Lex Luthor finally gets one up on Superman <laughs> and he finally becomes rich and he over he he manages to uh, take over Wayne Industries after Batman dies. And, and then, of course, the world is ending, so it's all for naught anyway. But uh, in any event, um, not bad, not bad. For, for newbies to Superman, if you just want a feel-good story that literally is from the beginning right to the literal end, but with Superman and his principles living on elsewhere in another area of the multiverse. This will be good for uh, uh, certainly for newbies and some longtime readers. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I I, I agree with you as well that um, yeah, the ending definitely you get that uh, All Star Superman feel. Plus, just the fact that he steps away from being a hero to concentrate work on a scientific solution. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously that's a big All Star Superman um, plot thread as well. Uh, okay, up next we have Black Adam, number eight, from writer Christopher Priest, Eddie Barrows, and Ibra Ferreira do art on pages one through seven. Somebody named Montos handles the pages eight through 22 art. Matt Herms does colors, Willie Schubert on lettering. This is sort of a flashback, giving us some of the history of Black Adam over the years uh, as he's worked for various pharaohs, many of them sort of unworthy honestly, to, to sit on the throne. Um, and Black Adam finally getting fed up with that and taking the throne himself. And then interspersed with that is this this war, this god who's in New York City uh, and causing problems, causing conflict. 
and the supporting cast of uh, of Black Adam running into him and where that's going to go and how that's all going to play out remains to be seen. But uh, as is the case with many Christopher Priest stories, we've talked about this before, this isn't uh, new reader friendly. That's very dense and oftentimes kind of have to read it all together or do multiple reads to really get the nuance of everything that's happening here. So um, beyond that, I don't really have much else to say. I didn't think the art was that great. Even in the beginning for the first eight pages, you know, I, I have high expectations when Eddie Barrows does art, but um, this felt unfinished from him. It wasn't up to his usual standard. So don't know if there's something going on, but uh, yeah, this was uh, only an okay issue for me. So what did you think? I, I'm going to give uh, writer Christopher Priest some credit here. I actually did enjoy the, the, the story. This is essentially, uh, we know from last issue that uh, Malik, the White Adam, was basically incapacitated after he had a misadventure with Mirror Master, sort of trapped in a mirror world where he sort of met the original Teth Adam back in his origin days when he... Uh, and when he, he finally got out of that mere universe or that mere world, that mere dimension, but he was incapacitated. And so he's he's on a hospital bed and Teth Adam is there making sure that he's all right. And he feels guilty. And, and he's and this the, the entire issue is essentially Teth Adam, uh, Black Adam, talking to Malik, telling him that uh, feeling guilty for that feeling responsible for for Malik's plight and also telling him his origin, telling him some of the secrets that uh, most people are not privy to. And the, the issue is called Rise. It's called East of Egypt, book one, Rise. The next issue will be called Fall. This is, and he's telling the story of the his rise to power. And, and uh, essentially he tells the story when he was in Egypt, uh, he, when he gained the power of, uh, I guess, Shazam, but through the Egyptian gods, uh, what, what annoyed what greatly annoyed Teth Adam is that he had to follow the he had to follow the the dictates of whoever the Pharaoh was. And for, for 23 different generations, he he obeyed the Pharaohs of Egypt. And finally, he got sick and tired of the final Pharaoh who was petty and ordered him to, you know, you know, get him grapes and get him food. And it was just he he felt. They, he he felt better than them. He felt that they were, uh, well, they were also corrupt. The last King Teti, I guess, he w w ordered him to exterminate and wipe out a bunch of women and children. So he decided essentially that he had had enough and he basically overcame them and he, he basically killed King Teddy and he became the pharaoh of Egypt. But his reign was very short-lived for reasons which will be revealed next issue. But this is, this is essentially Teth Adam explaining to Malik what his fall was, what his folly was, what his flaws of character were, that, that where he went to Ryan, where his, his life took on a different path because he feels guilty. Because remember that Teth Adam betrayed his nephew. He stole the power of Shazam from his nephew. Um, and he, and he became, he became Black Adam, but he did so at the cost of, he killed the seven, it's revealed that he killed the seven council of, of wizards. And he only, the, the one wizard, he, he, uh, I forget what he called them here. Uh, he's the sole. Uh, there was a council of seven, seven, and he killed six of them except for the wizard uh, who gave him his power. And he keeps the wizard in stasis. He kept the wizard in stasis because the wizard had all all of his all of his power, and that was sort of his secret. And 
ultimately we know that presumably the wizard wakes up and then strips uh, Black Adam of his power and then ba- or banishes him or shoots him away and a star locks him in a star somewhere and and he eventually makes it back to Earth uh, v- via the origin of Captain Marvel, I, I would imagine, or s- to some effect. If I'm sounding a little bit wonky talking about this, it's because... I Christopher Priest never does the readers a lot of favors in terms of getting you up to speed on what came before. <laughs> if I didn't have so many comics to read, I would probably have the previous issues where I could reread before I read this one. So I'm always I'm you know he doesn't he doesn't help the reader a lot. There's also a couple of uh, areas here where I don't think he under he I don't, I don't think he got. Teth Adams' dialogue well. He had one point when when Black Adam is talking to Malik. He actually he uh, he actually he, he uses language that is that is not language that um, that Teth Adam w- w- would use. Uh, he says at one point um, he says at one point uh, he calls. Um, um, yeah, what a jerk that guy was. And the people, the stupid people followed him, bl- blithely worshipped him. Tetty enslaved and tortured thousands. It just, I, I don't see, I, I don't, I have a hard time seeing Teth Adam using the word jerk. And by, like, Teth Adam, I see him talking arrogantly. I see him talking in, I don't see him talking using teenage vernacular like he does here when he's talking to Malik. It just never worked for me uh, in in different parts of the dialogue. It just didn't work. Plus, he's he's Egyptian. Or he's, or he's something, you know, it's, it, something's been off with this thing from the beginning. But in any event, there was a real cool uh, scene with, a, with an airplane where he caught an airplane crash landing in Kandak that looked really cool. That at the beginning, I thought the, uh, the art by Eddie Burroughs and uh, Edbert Ferreira were, was, was pretty damn good uh, with that plane almost crashing and he lifts it into the air. I thought it was very well done. It'll probably look even better in the, in the physical copy of the comic book uh, on a double page spread as he lifts the tire of the airplane into the air, uh, pushing the plane and avoiding it from hitting the ground. Anyways, um, all in all, not bad. Little hit and miss with the dialogue for me, but an interesting, an interesting origin. I just wish it was a little bit more clearly told because this could have been this should be more clear. I, I find this is a little bit too challenging as a read at times. Yeah, you could say that about just about any Christopher Priest book <laughs> recently. Yeah. yeah, he, like you said, he doesn't do the readers any favor. You kind of have to work. Um, there's and there's worth in working to get what he's got, getting at. But yeah, it's not really a his stories aren't really books you sit down, and relax, kind of veg out and read. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they take more effort than that. So. Uh, anyway, moving on, Batman, Superman, World's Finest, number 12, from writer Mark Wade. Manuel Lupacchino does the pencils, Wade Von Grominger and Norm Ratman on inks, Tamara Bonvillon on colors, Steve Wands on letters. This is <laughs> this is a date between Dick Grayson when he's Robin and Kara, Supergirl, and it goes about as well as you would expect. It's so interesting because, you know, earlier on in the run, Mark Wade hinted at a relationship for these two classic longtime DC heroes. And I kind of liked the idea, um, but they go on the state and through no fault of their own, they just don't really click. And so it, it it's just fun, right? They don't click. It doesn't work out. 
you can't really point the finger at one or the other. Um, but it makes sense why they're not together and it. I think it really works. So this was just a, he- a heck of a lot of fun. The art by Lupacino is solid. Uh, I don't, didn't quite enjoy it as much as I enjoy the, um, the Dan Moore art when Moore is on the book. Uh, but it's really, really solid. And there's plenty of humorous moments in this as well. So you look at what Mark Wade did this week and Lazarus Planet Omega, you know, really serious classic superhero work. And then you look at this more tongue in cheek with these two heroes going out on a date. And yeah, I mean, Mark Wade, he just loves DC comics as much as us fans and, you know, give him some classic DC heroes and he's going to give you a, a good story, whether it's serious and topical and set in, present day DC uh, or whether it's kind of a throwback, not necessarily a silver age feel, but definitely brings the humor. So uh, all in all, this was a very enjoyable issue. What'd you think? Yeah, this is a, yeah. And, and it's, it's, I love when a comic book is a done in one. It's a good, it's a one shot. You can just pick it up and enjoy it. And you don't, you don't need to read anything else. It's not continued. It's just, you get good character moments. You get, you get laugh out loud moments. You get some just some good old fashioned uh, superhero adventuring and some humor. And, you know, it's 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 funny where because Mark Wade, uh, we, we managed to get some pretty insightful moments about Dick Grayson and also about Kara. And Kara actually says what, what could be interpreted as maybe as, as a little bit of some scathing criticism of Dick Grayson. But it actually rings true. Dick Grayson does talk a lot about himself, but he's not a narcissist. He's not like that, but he's always looking for acceptance. And you can imagine a young Dick Grayson, a young Robin, is always looking for acceptance from Batman. He's always looking, saying, look what I did. I did this and then I did that. And he's always looking for approval. He's looking for approval from Bruce Wayne. And so he kind of carries that. He's an inex- he's inexperienced at dating. And a lot of that sort of comes through in his first date with, with Kara. He's sort of like he's telling her all that he's done. And, you know, and and it rubs her the wrong way because he's always talking about himself. But he's not he's not he doesn't intentionally want to come across like he's just sort of a know-it-all and doing that. It's, it's just that's just the way he is. He, he's young and he's still sort of figuring this out. And I think that comes through. It'd be interesting to see how the general readership will uh, take this issue because Kara herself, uh, I, I almost get the impression she's a little bit more mature than Dick Grayson here, but but maybe not. But she she's arguably judgmental of Dick Grayson, but yet at the same time, she's probably a little bit... Um, you know, dare I say, she's probably a little bit uh, hard on him, uh, I would suggest. And she's, uh, you know, Dick Grayson's got her own criticism of, of him as well. They just basically just didn't hit it off. And I love how when Kara's talking with Superman, Superman is sort of like, you know, saying, well, you know, it's some things won't work out. And then Batman, you know, Batman is, you know, sort of teasing, you know, Dick Grayson about it too and and Dick Grayson even comments at the end it didn't work out he asks if Talia has a sister a younger sister so I mean I I thought it worked really well I for for I, I think for it's a nice respite from the the action that we've got in previous issues to have this sort of issue where we could sit back and relax and just have some good humor, good fun, and get and get some good character work. So kudos to uh, Mark Wade uh, with uh, yeah, great art by uh, 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 Lapacello, uh, Lapacino, yeah, Lapacino, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. 
Uh, all right, moving on. We have Superman number one kicking off his new series from writer Jim, uh, Joshua Williamson. Art and colors by Jamal Campbell. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Um, I, if you listen to my interview that I did with Philip Kenny Johnson um, a few weeks ago, you'll know that he mentioned um, Lex Luthor really being a big part of what Joshua Williamson's doing in a Superman run. And so we get an idea of what exactly that means here. And basically what it means is that Lex is trying to manipulate Superman in a way that he hasn't before. Lex is in prison uh, after the events of uh, Superman, son of Kal-El. And he's basically created this legal document, what have you, that says that Superman is in charge. Superman himself is in charge of uh, Lex Industries. They, they call it Supercorp, and he's sort of tricking Superman into, into having to do it, having to be in charge. And you know, when Superman says, "No, you know, I'll turn it over to the workers," or you know, I don't want to do it. I want. He knows that Lex is up to something. You know, there's language in there that if Superman doesn't, it, you know, it'll all be dissolved. All these people will be out of work. So Lex has really created kind of a conundrum for Clark to have to be in charge. So it makes for an interesting dynamic. Uh, the other thing that's kind of cool that Williamson does, and he, he references it in the story, he talks about how there are certain people that Superman is always sort of listening for, listening for their heartbeat, listening for their voice, listening for, um, you know, what they're up to. And, and he names them specifically, John, his son, obviously, his wife, Lois, and the other one is Lex. And so as Superman is out there fighting these various threats, he fights Livewire in this issue, he fights Parasite, um, he's going up against um, these villains while Lex is – and we don't know how Lex knows that he's fighting these villains. But Lex is basically talking in his ear saying, well, you should do this or you should you should do that. Um, you know, this is the way to take on this villain or that villain or, villain or what have you. So – Again, it makes for a really interesting dynamic. It's like Lex claims that there is some big threat coming, um, and that's why he Superman needs to work with him. So, what that threat is, what's going to happen, you know, remains to be seen. But again, this is making for a really uh, interesting story, and uh, I'm. I thought it was fantastic. So, uh, and the Jamal Campbell, I mean, Jamal Campbell's just a fantastic artist. So um, it, that, it, that worked for me really well as well. What were your thoughts on this rock? Well, first of all, uh, kudos to J Jamal Campbell. Uh, I know that uh, he did phenomenal work on, uh, on uh, Naomi and on uh, far sector. Uh, but it's nice that he's, he actually has, the big his name in bigger lights with uh, Superman because he deserves it here. Wow, what a what a fant what a beautifully illustrated issue, and I got to give props to uh, Joshua Williamson here because I had my doubts, you know, because the only thing Joshua Williamson has written that I've really liked in the last number of years has been his Robin run. He surprised me with Robin. I was hoping he wouldn't disappoint me with Superman and he hasn't. This opening issue impressed me. This issue has action, romance, humor, uh, uh, suspense, uh, 
it's it's kind of got it all i'm i'm actually particular i'm i'm actually impressed starts off with a battle against livewire superman is as he's actually listening and as you said he he listens for certain people uh who and lex luther is one of them and he's it's ironically he's battling livewire while he's listening to what lex luther is saying and lex luther for for whatever reason knows he's fighting livewire luther's trying to give him advice and of course superman won't have any of it luther's given him advice that would ultimately lead to livewire getting killed uh, because luther just likes playing with superman that way but that's not superman superman incapacitates livewire in his own way he does it compassionately and uh, with no judgment and he she's apprehended by the authorities Uh, we then switch to the daily planet lois lane is filling in for perry white perry white's recovering from his stroke that he got when the secret identity fiasco happened and so uh, lewis lane's filling in for the planet uh, as as temporary editor-in-chief meanwhile uh, clark kent you know talks to his wife talks to lois and says you know he talks about lex luther he talks about lex luther being the only guy that he's he feels that he's failed and that he it's lex luther is almost like the villain that he's the only villain that he's he feels that he's ever really given up on and he feels maybe guilty for for maybe he shouldn't give up on lex but yet lex is a conundrum to him so He's always trying to get it to figure out Lex Luthor. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's always listening in on what Luthor is doing and keeping an eye on him. And Luthor has his go too. Like you said, we got the, the, the super corporation or the, or the, what do you call it? Uh, what what did he call it? Super core. Super yeah. Yeah. Super corporation. Super core. Uh, Mercy. Mercy Graves being sort of like uh, advising Superman that Lex Luthor apparently has all these lawyers, and Superman is now the lead executive o- directing officer of Super core, and he's the one that can tell Super core what to do. Superman doesn't want the job. He's got other things to do, but Lex Luthor has handed him the reins, and apparently this is really kind of hard to believe but we'll go with it because it's an important part of the story that apparently Lex Luthor employs so many people in Metropolis that if Superman doesn't lead Supercore a bunch of millions of millions of Metropolis Metropolis citizens will lose their jobs so in a sense it's almost like Superman is blackmailed into becoming the CEO of Supercore so that that's very hard to believe I mean Lex Luthor was broke until about a year ago when he blackmailed Blockbuster and a few other supervillains to give him each give him a billion dollars. So he's not that rich. But in any event, he is Lex Luthor. Um, and, you know, he ends up battling then the, uh, the parasite. And uh, there, there are some forces here. Somebody's controlling the parasite that is after Lex Luthor. Or, and as, as you said, Lex Luthor want, needs Superman to help battle a greater threat that also wants to take out Lex Luthor. That seems to be the implication here. So that's interesting. Uh, I think one of the funnier moments is when, a quick note, uh, where Lex Luthor, uh, the, the computer art- artificial intelligence, the AI that runs Supercore, uh, is actually it, it's a it's a hologram of, of Lex Luthor and it's quite hilarious and Mercy says that uh, you know uh, Mr. Luthor thought it would be would uh, new part of your training to become Superman was a hologram of your birth father Jor-El he thought a hologram of himself might be comforting to you so <laughs> of course super it only pisses Superman off but anyways uh, th- I thought there were some funny moments here and again it was magnified uh, and exemplified by Jemal Campbell's amazing art and uh, it was just you know it was very well done and I'm I'm in for the long haul here there's teases as to a potential future villain uh, that looks to be maybe Brainiac at the end of it uh, I think uh, G- Williamson took a page out of uh, 
Jeff Johns in that respect, hinting at uh, danger, horror, and adventures in the future, and even a place, even something in the Wild West. So it's going to be interesting to see what the future holds for Superman. But Joshua Williamson has got my attention. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I'm curious as well. It has such a different feel than action comics. That's what's so intriguing to me. It's yeah. been a long time since we've had two books that felt so different um, starting Superman. And, but what I find particularly interesting, you know, again, I talked to uh, PKJ about the triangle era and his love for that and, and, you know, paying respects to that and having a big supporting cast. It feels like the Superman book is going to have a big supporting cast too. I mean, we see Lois Lane now as editor in chief of the daily planet. So it's been a long time since the Superman book has had that supporting cast and the daily planet and the people that work there and what have you have felt like, supporting characters um a lot lately it feels like the superman books have just focused on superman um and to a lesser extent john kent and an even lesser extent lois and everybody below that isn't even worth mentioning they show up uh, so little so uh i for one am uh, excited about seeing the supporting cast because those characters have been have been established over decades and they've had good stories in their own right so that's a uh, a return to a previous era or previous eras, and it's a welcome in my mind. For sure. Uh, all right. Moving on, Teen Titans United Blood Pack number six, final issue from writer Kevin Scott, Lucas Myers, the artist, Tony Avina on colors, Carlos Emanuel on letters. Throughout, the Lucas Meyer art has been absolutely fantastic. And throughout, as Rocky and I both said, this is a very new reader-friendly book, story, what have you. Sort of the antithesis of what priest does uh you can just jump on this series and having never read any titans or have anything to do with what's going on in the current dc continuity you get to see the interactions the characterizations the relationships between these different characters these different titans and it works on that level really really also with the lucas meyer art again fantastic storytelling his art style is very easy to understand. It's a very classic superheroic. He breaks panels. He gives us montage pages. Uh, but the, the panel layouts and the page layouts flow very, very well. So again, this is a, a book that is really like an entry level. If you're curious, hey, am I going to like comics? Man, if you're a fan of the DC TV show um, that comes on HBO Max or the, the Titans TV show, I should say, you definitely should be picking this up because – this is this, that same sort of feel. Okay. As far as the story itself, yeah, it's not the most original, this whole idea of a supervillain creating an alternate reality and you know trapping these heroes in it, and the heroes don't even realize that the, the, life, the lives that they're living aren't their real lives. It's not real reality. Um, and so, again, it's not the most original, but Kevin Scott makes good use of the concept and – uh, again, where this book really shines is in the relationships, the relationships of these heroes to themselves, the camaraderie they share, the, the, the fact they depend on each other, the trust they have. Ultimately, that's what wins the day. And again, that's not the most original idea. It's sort of to be expected, but the execution of it, both narratively and visually by Kevin Scott and Lucas Meyer and um, the, the color work for that matter. Uh, from Tony Avenia, all of it works to really get that across that idea. These are heroes. This is a team. They trust each other. 
they can't succeed alone. Um, so I really enjoyed this. Um, I'd be curious to see if we get more of the Titans United. We've had two series so far, um, and they've both been excellent. So what were your thoughts on this, Rock? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think the series, uh, the sales are all that high on it, although we, we can say that about a lot of uh, <laughs> big two comic books. Uh, but th- this was this is exactly what I, I've – I've enjoyed this. I this is a lot of fun, and this was this final issue has you know it is it is maybe a little predictable, but at the same time it it makes me feel like I'm reading classic Teen Titans, even though it, the the membership is a little bit little bit wonky. But I I like it. I like and this this in this issue, Beast Boy sort of uh, betrays the team by luring them into Red Raven, Red Raven, uh, who's been possessed by Trigon uh, in this other in this other sort of alternate Earth. Ultimately, uh, her true self, her true soul self, uh, wins out, wins the day, and they they end up they end up. Uh, uh, overcoming the, the 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 mental manipulation of uh, the brother blood and the the villains who became the the heroes of this universe ultimately their mind manipulation is ended as well and at the end of the day it's all wrapped up in a tiny little bow uh, with uh, my favorite character uh, was is Jinx Jinx I wish that uh, I just liked the way she was characterized here uh, she was actually came across as fairly heroic despite being often of course the villain and i just thought i I like how kevin scott thank uh he thought outside the box here and he had a lot of fun with these characters and he can do basically whatever he wanted with them because he was you know he did that right when this first came out this titans united this was not really in the mainstream dc universe it still isn't and to add to even add more fun to it he took it wasn't in continuity anyway, and so he put him on yet another Earth <laughs> and had all kinds of wonky fun with this. This has been a fun series, and um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that people pick it up. The And the art, I just love the art. I have to say I've been buying the uh, – I don't often buy co- alternate covers – uh, but I've been uh, I've been enjoying both cover A and the, the cover B. Uh, I really like the, the cover Bs uh, as well on, on this. So, uh, yeah, I would. This is this is a recommended for people looking for uh, a good Teen Titans story, but they don't want to get tied down in the continuity because uh, I, until Tom Taylor starts the the. the the Titans series. This, if you like classic Teen Titans and you want something that maybe take took place after that with the same sensibilities and the same sense of fun, pick up Titans United and Titans United Blood Pact. Yeah, agreed, hundred uh, percent. Okay, up next we have Flash Seven Ninety Threes from writer Jeremy Adams, pencils by Roger Cruz, inks by Wellington Diaz, colors by Luis Guerrero, letters by Rob Lee. One Minute War Part Four: Thunder in Your Heart. Uh, feels like a bit of a setup issue, although we do get Wally in the Flash mobile um, as the the Flash family starts to understand what they're up against when they're fighting the fraction. A lot of that information comes to them from the person that um, Ace and Impulse rescued from the ship, the one that was being used as basically a power source. He's the one that provides a lot of information to the rest of the Flash family about who the fraction is and how they do things. Um, and so the, the Flash family, they hatch a plan. They think will be able to stop the fraction from being able to access the speed force and give the Flash family a big advantage. Things don't exactly go the way that they expect. 
which then leads to um, kind of a cliffhanger ending where the, the Flash family is not exactly in a, in a good spot. So how they may or may not get out of this, I guess we'll have to wait and see for next issue. But the stakes continue to be raised, and it's clear that the Fraction are even more formidable than the Flash family may have given them credit for. So um, the Roger Cruz art, it's okay. Uh, I feel like the art here isn't as strong as the art we got from him in uh, the Robin series. Not sure if it's just because of the schedule. You know, this book is coming out bi-weekly, so every two weeks as opposed to once a month. Uh, because there's not as much detail, it's just not as doesn't look as finished or as polished. Storytelling is still really strong. I like the way he blocks out his panels. Um, he moves the camera angle around a lot, so I appreciate that. But yeah, the, the detail in the art is just not quite there. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? You know, my thought on this is that wouldn't it have been a better idea with, with uh, instead of Lazarus Planet, we had the Flash One Minute War and that it was the fallout of the Flash One Minute War and the fact that the Speed Force is catching the Earth and speeding the Earth up and uh, that that is what leads to various humans uh, exhibiting different kinds of metahuman powers instead of Lazarus Reign. Imagine this as in the event, because this is really the event that people are talking about, Flash One Minute War, and yet, unfortunately, it's not really... It's 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 been talked about, but it doesn't really feel like it's been given the gravitas and the marketing as some of the other stuff. And yet, frankly, I'm far more interested in, all, without exception, without exception, all of the hero, all of the characters that I've been introduced to in One Minute War. Uh, I've got more questions about, you know, even uh, from Avery to this new commander of the, the of the Empress of the leader of the Fraction. I'm I'm actually curious about these as, as characters and about as villains moving forward uh, than I am for some of the uh, characters in Lazarus Planet and that's just because and that's just comes down to basically the writing here now to be fair I think the writing here uh, I think that things Jeremy Adams is sort of uh, dare I use the phrase speeding up the narrative <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this is happening fairly quickly um uh, and I wish I wish we'd have a little bit more. I wish maybe we could slow down. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I'd like to stay in this plot point for a while to have a little bit more development of, in terms of all the various characters that make up the fraction. But uh, but you know, look, I'll take what I can get here because I know Jeremy Adams is off to writing Green Lantern, and he's going to probably be off Flash here. But I will say this: one of the things I talked about earlier, and it was a nitpick of mine, is that I wish I would have gotten a sense as to visually. Uh, from an artistic perspective, how everything is being sped up here. And and there's a hint of it here on the very first page where Superman is saying the word what and he's talking really slow because he's actually moving slow. So this is the first visual indication that everyone else, that they're actually moving super fast, but Superman himself is really, really slow. And even that doesn't come across very well. So I think visually... Uh, I, I think this whole concept could have been rethought from a visual perspective. And again, I don't know how it could have been rethought from a visual perspective, but I just, it should have, it should, it just should look differently that, that it does. And um, uh, in any event, so all the heroes are basically sort of like the equivalent of being frozen, but not, they're not really frozen. They're just really, they're moving really, really slow compared to everyone else. And, 
And the whole issue is, is focuses on Jeremy Adams' strong points as a writer is that he's really good at character moments and all of these character interactions between uh, with with Jay or uh, pardon me with Irie and Jesse Quick and uh, uh, there's a great moment between Linda and this new uh, this new character who's. Uh, the organic conduit from another universe who can uh, connect through the speed force. He was sort of like the human battery that uh, Impulse and Wallace West found last issue. And the great moment between Barry and, and Wally where Barry sort of breaks down and shows his insecurities, you know, about it, his fear of losing, uh, a fear of losing Iris. Uh, after all, the, he was about to propose to her when she proposed to him. He was just starting to get his life on track when the fraction attacked. And so the, the emotional stakes are really raised in this issue, which is really good. This is sort of like this is sort of like those emotional high points of a movie before the third act kicks in and all the action happens. That's what this issue is. And I think it works pretty well. Uh, I think Roger Cruz's art is, again, I, I think it's serviceable. I, I wish there was a different artist on this, but it still works because of the strength of the writing. And uh, it's still it's still, frankly, one of the my top reads and must reads for D.C., when it comes out, because kudos to Jeremy Adams and to Roger Cruz too. I don't want to take anything away from the full creative team here because I'm being entertained. So I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I think I just, again, like selfishly, I like that it comes out every two weeks because we're getting the story quicker and it's getting Jeremy Adams a chance to write more flash. Cause like you said, he's probably going to be leaving it to concentrate on green lantern. Um, I just wish Cruz had more time, you know, like, yeah. Cause his work on the, Robin series was fantastic. So, uh, all right, moving on. We have, <coughs> excuse me, deceased war of the undead gods. Number six from writer, Tom Taylor pencils are by Trevor Hairsign, inks by Andy Lanning colors by rain Barreto letters by Seda Timofante. Um, I'll let Rocky talk more about the story. Uh, I, but there were a couple moments that stood out for me. The very beginning when Lobo has to be convinced to save the universe, by them. <laughs> this council promising him, uh, what does it say? Uh, Our greatest minds will turn their vast intellect to an onslaught of creative scenarios for your personal gratification. Nothing will be too depraved. And Lobo, like, <laughs> reluctantly, fine, okay. Uh, that's what he wants, right? Like, he, he's Lobo. Uh, yeah. So, you know, again, it, it's Tom Taylor showing that he has such an incredible grasp for the core of these characters. So even in the midst of this horrific story that he's telling, uh, we get moments like that with Lobo that are, are humorous. And then the other moment that st stood out for me, I mentioned it earlier <laughs> at the top, um, Alfred, who's been through so much in this entire DC uh, storyline universe, whatever you want to call it from Tom Taylor. Um, you know, he, he sort of has a very close personal relationship with Les, Leslie Top, Tompkins in this uh, in this universe, like a, a personal and intimate one. And so when she's infected, it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And he screams out in rage, you know, thinking about having lost his beloved um, Thomas and Martha Wayne way back when and having to raise their son, the scream he never uttered then. And then to go back to more recent history in this uh, universe where he had to kill Dick Grayson and Tim Drake and Bruce Wayne himself because they were infected with uh, the anti-life equation. 
And he's, you know, in that moment when he screams out with rage, the specter having been killed earlier in the issue uh, in his battle with uh, Mixius Pitalik, where Mixius Pitalik reached into the specter and removed, um, removed the host, removed, uh, God, what's his name? Jim. Jim Corrigan. Jim, Jim Corrigan. Corrigan. I want to say, yeah, I want to say Gordon. I was like Gordon. Yeah. Jim Corrigan. And basically the, you know, the, the specter dissipated, he no longer had a human host. Uh, well, in this moment of, of this rage, this scream, this, you know, cry out for vengeance about the injustice to <laughs> no pun intended referencing an, uh, another Tom Taylor, the first <laughs> series Tom Taylor did at DC that really put his name on the map. Um, in that moment, in that rage, uh, Alfred Pennyworth becomes the specter. Is there any better? Like I want this in the regular D I want, you know, granted if anybody were to do that now, I would hope that they would go to Tom first of all and say, Hey, I'm inspired by what you did. It would feel a little derivative, but man, I like if we're going to bring Alfred Pennyworth back in the main DC universe, what better way? That's how they brought uh, Hal Jordan back from the dead. Right. Uh, But I just love this idea. I love the idea of Alfred Pennyworth as the specter. And obviously it works better here because the, you know, what he's lost in this particular universe in the deceased universe is so much more than what Alfred Pennyworth. I mean, in a way in the main DC universe, he's lost his own life and the argument could be made. That's more than this. At least this Alfred Pennyworth was still alive, but you get what I'm saying. Um, But I just thought that that was so inspired. So fantastic. You know, I talked uh, several comics that we've covered on this episode about how you kind of could see what's coming. Not that they were any less enjoyable for that, you know, like Titans United, but I did not see this coming. And it was such a fantastic moment. I didn't see it coming until, the, you know, when he starts screaming and he's the one that's been narrating Alfred Pennyworth. That is, he's the one that's been narrating the entire issue. You know, something is coming. And then, you know, it was at that moment when he started screaming uh, and I realized his texts boxes were this greenish yellow throughout. And it was at that moment. I was like, Oh my God, he's going to become the specter. And yeah, sure enough. Uh, he does. So I, I just thought it was fantastic. What an inspired job by Tom Taylor. Um, and the Trevor Hairsign art, like I've said throughout these deceased books, uh, Hairsign, his style of art, like the grittiness, the fineness of the lines, the detail, it so perfectly suits this tone of the, the universe and the storyline that Tom Taylor's going for. And the other thing it does is it lends itself, his, his fine line really lends itself to the look and feel of the way characters who are infected with the anti-life equation sh- should look, right? Like they're a little, they're not clean. They're a little gritty. They're, you know, they're a little, there's a fineness to the line, um, it's it's hard to describe exactly, but hair signs artwork is perfectly suited. Like this, this is just this entire deceased property. Um, he was the perfect artist. I don't, I can't imagine any other artist on this. It, it just wouldn't work as well. So um, yeah, I thought this was just, just great. Like Alfred Pennyworth becoming the specter that that's definitely on my list for best moments for 2023 already. So what, what did you think about it? Well, uh, Lobo's a lucky bastard. You know, he, if Lobo is successful in helping the heroes defeat the anti-life zombies that are destroying the universe, he gets a hundred years of hedonism. 
And and even Lobo, leave it to Lobo to have something to complain about a hundred years of hedonism. He he still figures. Well, I'm gonna when I get bored. And they say, well, 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 we promise we won't make it boring. Well, you'll get, we'll make, we'll give you a hedonistic life for a hundred years, and we promise we'll be creative as possible. So that that tipped the scales of Lobo. Lobo is going to help the heroes defeat the uh, the undead gods. And uh, there's a great scene here. Uh, you know, you, you talked about Alfred already, and right at the beginning, as as I often do, and I think those of us who've read comics a long time, we get accustomed to when we when we see a narration, when we see an, a, a, a box of dialogue, we wonder who the narrator is. And I was wondering from the beginning here, because one of the things that happens at the beginning, it shows Superman talking to Kyle Rayner. They just witnessed the complete destruction of, of, of uh, John Stewart's home planet. And, uh, yeah, and Kilowog was killed and John Stewart, and it was horrifying. And Superman yeah, is actually... Kilowog's home planet. You said John Stewart's home John, planet. Pardon me, John, right, uh, Kilowog's home planet. And, uh, you know, Superman is looking at the uh, the Yellow Lantern dark side. And uh, there's something where he said, he goes, uh, uh, Clark put his anger aside in a way that I later could not. Uh, he did not lash out at what was right in front of him. And I thought, well, who who's going to lash out later on? And it's, it's so perfectly it so perfectly ties in to that final page where of course it's Alfred saying this, that Superman did not give in to anger, but Alfred does at the end. And by doing so attracts the spirit of wrath to become the specter. So there's a really nice tie in there and a reward from the, at the beginning of the issue that ties in nicely with the end works fantastic. And then in between there, you get this amazing fight that, you know, leave it to Superman. I mean, who, who in the hell is going to get in the middle in between a fight between the specter and an undead mix mixia's patelic and of course it's superman who helps uh defeat um mixie mixia's patelic and um uh and ultimately the the spirit of uh, the, the the wrath the spirit of wrath ultimately ends up in alfred uh the the new gods return the new gods the mother box is infected by the undead virus as well the anti-life virus and so the because the mother box is infected so are all the new gods there's a battle between the new gods and the heroes and that's epic as well and and all the other heroes we see from previous issues are infected they're coming on onto the fray and ultimately that leads to uh the the course of events that leads to the specter uh well alfred becoming the specter and now unfortunately we don't see lobo we don't see lobo get in on the action in this issue we just saw lobo basically being sort of agreeing that he's going to help help out in the battle but we don't see him here it just ends with alfred becoming the specter but my god you know this is issue six of eight i want this to be a i want this to be 12 issues <laughs> i only two issues more I, I want more than two issues of this you know I'm, I'm really enjoying this but uh you know this this comic book series has been delayed a lot feels like it's been a long time since the last issue uh but i will say that you know and, and i know this is no excuse but damn if it's this good if if it in order to be this good, if if you have to delay it another week or so, okay, you know this is going to read great as a trade. I have a feeling I haven't picked up all the deceased's trades, but I think I might pick up this one, War of the Undead Gods, as a as a as a trade or as a hardcover because I I'm I'm really enjoying this so far, and I I really hope Taylor nails the landing. You're on mute there. Sorry there, Jace. You're on mute. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I want more issues just so I can see more of Alfred Pennyworth as Inspector. Like, <laughs> I, I want, I want, I just, I, I don't even care about the rest of the DC universe right now. 
I just want I need an Alfred Pettyworth Spectre series, please, DC. Can I get that? Yeah. That would be awesome. So good. I mean, we we did recently uh, in the Batman Urban Legends, we had that three part story where um, Alfred was plain detective, which was really fun. So that would be so great to see him kind of do some detective work in his, um, you know, in his human guys and when necessary specter out. Yeah. So good. Uh, all right. Up next we have GCPD, the blue wall, number five. This was from writer, John Ridley. It's drawn by Stefano Raffali, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Josh Reed. Wow. This might be the best issue of this series so far. Uh, it's been a very political issue uh, series and a very topical series talking about police corruption and what have you. That's part of what makes it work so well. Um, cause everything that's happening in the series, you, you sort of understand and, and can, can, you know, believe it. And this police officer, Daniel Ortega, who seemingly out of the blue killed Montoya's brother and her brother's fiance last issue. And then you, you saw the clues being laid, you know, once that happened, once he kind of had this mental breakdown or snapped or whatever you want to say, went postal another term um, you could kind of see all along he was being radicalized, you know, the, the constant hazing uh, and just when he thought he had a breakthrough with his colleagues at work, they set him up for, you know, even more embarrassment. And that time it was in front of his father who, you know, hasn't been a, a big fan of his son being a police officer in the Ortega being somebody who believed he could change the system from the inside. And then, you know, when that last moment happened when he was embarrassed in front of his father, yeah, he just realizes the, in his mind, the machine, as he calls it, that is the GCPD is just broken beyond repair. So he wants to tear it all down. It's all, again, not the most original idea, but it's all done with a lot of emotion, a lot of stakes, a lot of consequences, and a lot of emotional weight and realism from Ridley. So as much as it's at times uncomfortable, as much as at times the conversations and the interactions between characters feel uncomfortable because neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. Like there's scenes where Montoya is talking with her, you know, second in command. He's like, you need to step back. You need to, you know, take some time for yourself. She's not willing to do that. Obviously she's personally, personally invested her brother having been killed. You can see his point. You can see her point when they're talking about, this Daniel Ortega and whether or not they should have seen it coming, whether they did enough, you know, well, if he was being hazed, why didn't, why didn't he say something? Well, he did. He told all any number of people. And she's like, yeah. And I told him he needed to toughen up. Like, again, you can, you can see both sides. Like at what point, well, that just because somebody got hazed doesn't justify murder, you know? So again, there are no right answers. This isn't a black and white book. This isn't a book about, you know, traditional superheroes in, Hey, Superman's fighting Lex Luthor, Superman, good Lex Luthor, bad. This is, you know, much more real, much more nuanced, much more in the gray area of like police brutality and systemic issues of not just racism in, in police departments or law enforcement, but just systemic racism as it exists in Western civilization. There aren't any answers. If there were easy answers for this stuff, somebody would come along and solve it. Right. Um, but they're, hard conversations and they're uncomfortable conversations, but they're conver conversations we need to have. Uh, and stories like this and fiction like this 
uh, engenders starting those conversations and hopefully makes people think about how they're contributing, how they're a part of the system. Again, I, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. Um, you grow up in that system and you don't even read, you know, oftentimes you're not even aware of the fact that you may be perpetuating that system. So a story like this, a, a comic like this can start those conversations, can help raise that awareness. So maybe you stop and think about decisions you make in your own life or, you know, the way you do things um, that can contribute to that. So there's a lot of worth in that. And then when you add in the Rafali art, which is also very real and very emotional. Yeah. This, this just blew me away. It was so good. A uh, real page turner. And this has been a powerful series so far. Uh, I give Ridley all the credit in the world for this. Um, there's been a few issues. We're a little lighter where we got some humorous moments here or there. This is not, this is not one of those issues where there's humor. This is all angst. And it, uh, yeah. yeah, I was very, very, I was very, very impressed. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> oh man. I, I love this. I, I, and I, I love this for as, cause this was a gut wrenchingly painful read. And this has, this is the type of comic where depending on what type of comic book reader you are, you definitely don't want to read this. If politics and comics isn't your thing. Don't read this. But if you like good drama, and if you're like you, you like police serials serials and, and you like uh, you like crime noir, man, this is right up there. And I don't think this is like I, I don't think this is like shoved in your face or whatever. This is like or, or this is completely unbelievable. Or I mean, it's absolutely horrific and tragic. But it's this is visceral. This feels like this is character based. This is really and this moves the characters. Wow. I mean, Renee Montoya, her brother Benny. Benny is dead and his fiance Sandra are dead. She's, you know, uh, you know, let's just talk about Renee Montoya for a second. This is a woman who's gone through all kinds of non all types of crap with the Gotham, Gotham PD. And uh, just a call out to people out there who uh, loved Gotham, uh, who uh, who loved Gotham Central. I mean, this is my God, man, this you have to you should be reading this. This is this is such a this is an emotional sequel to that, because if anybody knows the ups and downs of dealing with the uh, with the prejudices that exist within a police department, not just against based on race, but also sexual orientation. It's Renee Montoya. But that's just the that's just the tip of the iceberg here. It's the it's the small little, as you said, subtle impact that that has on people's behavior and on police officers behavior. You know, uh, that Danny Ortega, the young officer whose treatment by his older officers and uh, and he was, you know, basically fed racial epitaphs and basically put down and and humiliated what uh uh, he he eventually he snapped and he snapped and yeah he killed it he you know he killed and he wanted to take it out against Renee uh, the commissioner and he ends up killing uh, Renee's brother and and his fiance and and he and he's and he's got a father who, who, who of course, is almost proud of him. That's what's sad because his father grew up to hate America, hate the prejudice, hate hate the people that put down his race. And his father refuses to help the police. Uh, and you can understand why. And 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 it's quite extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, you got somebody who's done an egregious, horrible criminal act, and yet, God damn, you're sympath we're sympathizing with this guy. 
Well, that's the power of John Ridley's writing. And, you know, we're sympathizing with the father, even this, the, the father, uh, uh, Danny Ortega's father. He's kind of a piece of garbage, too. And yet you can kind of sympathize with him, too. What kind of life did he have? This is the true life of Gotham. <laughs> you can understand that, you know, Gotham City has its problems. But, you know, it's its problems have, are far more are far more significant than just the fact that the guy who the guy who uh, dresses in cackles like a uh, clown once in a while uh you know it's not batman's rogues gallery that's the problem in gotham city it's the it's the life and it's 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 all encompassing and uh, you know there's there's um what uh one great scene here there's so many great scenes i mean there's a scene here where where a couple of issues ago it was it was it was actually comical that renee montoya couldn't keep her goldfish alive and and she she gave her brother benny and sandra she gave him heck for getting her a dog she goes i can't even keep my goldfish alive why are you getting me a dog and of course she even she wants to give up the dog because she the dog probably reminds her of her brother but she can't because they're they'll put the the dog down because nobody claims any of the dogs in the in the in in the in the pet house or whatever the hell it is. And so she finds herself, she, she can't let, you know, she's, she, she's thinking of her brother. She, she, she's going to keep the dog. She, she has to catch this serial killer. She's got the press on her back and she, you know, she finds herself back in the bar where this with the same bartender that she told, look, if I ever come in here wanting a drink, don't give me a drink. The bartender gives, you know, she goes in, she asks for a drink <laughs> and all of this comes to a head and it culminates in the end. Cause we finally get the return of two face where two face even he, I mean, God, she's even got even two face feels sorry for her. He says to her, look, I feel bad for you. Just to say the word, this Danny Ortega guy will disappear. I'll do it. You don't have to, you won't have to, I, I won't say anything. I'll just do this for you. And to show the quality of Renee Montoya's character here, it's just incredible. Renee says to Two-Face, she says, if you really are reformed, Harvey, if you really are reformed, then you've got to stay reformed. If one of us has to become a monster, it has to be me. She won't even allow somebody who already knows what it's like to be a monster, namely Two-Face, Harvey Dent, to, to do what she feels she has to do herself. She's, she, she takes responsibilities for her actions. So as far as Renee Montoya has fallen, she hasn't quite fallen hard enough that she won't abandon her own responsibilities. Now, what she's going to do, how will she handle Danny Ortega? We're going to have to wait to the next issue to find out. But man... What fantastic character work. John Ridley, you know, we, we've been sort of hit and miss with him with I Am Batman, but more, more impressed than not. But this, this is, um, this is so, I was so impressed this week with this issue that when we get to the pick of the week, you're not going to be surprised what I say. And it had some stiff competition this week, but it. Yeah, yeah it was tough. Uh, you know, this reminds me of a little bit when we talk about Renee, right? Like, so, you know, we saw her go to New York City in Ridley's other book, I Am Batman, and be offered the commissionership at, uh, of the NYPD. Uh, she you know, ultimately turned it down. She was there both as Renee Montoya to interview for the job, also acting as the question. Here she's obviously choosing not to act as the question to do her job as the commissioner. And I know you've read this back in the day, Rocky. It's still one of my favorite series of all time. It's not as nuanced as this is because it's a bit of a product of its time. It's a series that came out in the 80s called Vigilante. Obviously, yeah. Adrian Chase, Vigilante. A lot of people know who he is now from the uh, Peacemaker TV show. Let me just say the Vigilante that isn't the Peacemaker TV show, not that I've seen him, just from what people have told me, resembles nothing of the Vigilante in the 50-issue series from Marv Wolfman that spun out of New Teen Titans. And it was so 
it was such a great, so that came out when I was like 13, I fell in love with that series. And that was really the first series wasn't for me, not, it wasn't Watchmen. It wasn't dark Knight returns. It was vigilante that showed me what comics could really be in telling mature stories. And he put, he sets aside his vigilante costume and becomes a judge and feels like morally he shouldn't be sitting on the bench while also being a vigilante, similar to what Renee Montoya is doing here. And again, the parallel is, that you can draw is this is a story. This is a series that can show you how mature comics can be. And and obviously everybody kind of knows that now with comics being at the center of pop culture. But back in 1987, when Vigilante was coming out, people didn't. They thought of them as, you know, funny books um, and and kind of silver agey. But uh, that that's not the case. And this is fantastic. And I, I would put this up against, as Rocky said, any – any police procedural, you know, The Wire or um, Homicide Life on the Street, any of those type of real gritty, realistic uh, TV procedurals, this is right up there in terms of quality and story. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing number 101. This is from writer Tom Taylor. We have a fill-in artist, Travis Moore, handles the art, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters, ties in with Nightwing 98, where Dick uh, rescued... Uh, Blockbuster's daughter, Olivia. And we find out that Olivia's soul, apparently Blockbuster made a deal with Neron, who's sort of the Mephisto of the DC universe or the Satan of the DC universe. And uh, Nightwing prevented Neron from, from getting his hands on Olivia. So Neron's back to get what's owed to him. And that's sort of uh, what's going on here. There's uh, also some sort of a mystery going on with who Neron gets to kind of say, Hey, I can't exactly go up against these guys myself, go up against the Titans myself because Raven's involved and she's very powerful. And obviously I don't want to piss off her father, Trigon. So he's going to get some minions, some um, mortals to do his dirty work, if you will. And they start off by planting this body in the rubble of Titans tower. Uh, We saw Titans tower, you know, destroyed in the pages of teen Titans Academy. Um, and that sort of sets up this this mystery that's uh, that's moving forward. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. There's also uh, a backup story that follows on the Nightwing annual that came earlier uh, last year with Dick training on Kent and how to fight, how to use his superpowers to fight, but not accidentally kill somebody by you know knocking their head off. That's from writer C.S. Pocket. Eduardo Penseca is the penciler on that. Julio Ferreira on inks and Adriana Lucas. On colors with Wes Abbott on letters, that was uh, enjoyable. I think Nightwing, you know, Dick Grayson, who's been around for 80 years, 75 years, whatever, it's such a, a combination I wouldn't necessarily think of teaming him up with the John Kent version of Superman, who's, you know, only been around for like 10 years. Uh, but that combination really, really works. I mean, we're talking about the firstborn sons, technically, I mean, Dick Grayson being an adopted son, but the firstborn sons of the world's finest heroes, right? Superman and Batman. So it really works. So all in all, this was a little bit of an uneven issue for me because the the main story, the Nightwing Rise of the Underworld story, it feels so different in tone than anything we've gotten from Tom Taylor and Nightwing so far, bringing in Neuron and magic and more fantastical aspects of DC. Whereas the Nightwing story he's been telling up to this point, the, the whole run has been very grounded so it, just, I don't know. It feels a little out of place here. I don't know. Maybe he's just setting things up for his Titans run. 
which, you know, may be more traditionally super heroic as opposed to Nightwing, which, you know, very similar to Batman is a very grounded sort of street series, basically. So, uh, yeah, not not my favorite issue, but it's it's good to see Travis more on Nightwing because his art's fantastic. And the um, Eduardo Penseca art, uh, is great as well in the backup story. So yeah. what were your thoughts? Uh, Travis Moore's art's fantastic. And wow, Blockbuster, what a piece of work. What kind of guy? I mean, isn't it amazing how the most evil, vile bastards have the most beautiful, innocent children? I mean, <laughs> I mean this Desmond child, I mean, Olivia Desmond, I mean, she's just, I mean, she's impossible not to love. She's, she's like, she's, She's playing. She's actually. She gets to play with the Titans. She gets to play with like Beast Boy, who who transforms into a unicorn, and she pretends like she's like a female King Arthur, and she's wielding a sword. And I mean, and then Starfire is playing along. I mean, she gets to play with the Titans. How cool is that? I mean, it's it just this 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 entire issue is fun. This entire first part of this issue and of course it takes place after this neuron. You know, of course he's looking for her soul and. I had to be reminded. I I completely forgot that uh, that Desmond that I didn't realize that Desmond uh, 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 had done that. That Blockbuster had sold the soul of his daughter. I mean, what a piece of work! But I mean, what a, what a nice what, what an interesting story that can now be told because it is it's it's interesting because now. Now, Neron, of all people, he's he apparently there was a villain that has taken over the soul of the king of Vlatava, Vlatava, and and apparently whoever this uh, presumably this soul, uh, the the king of Vlatava, the real king of Vlatava was was killed a number of months ago, and his soul, his body was, I guess, is, was replaced by a, a, some bad guy's soul that Neron has, and now Neron is going to the king of Latavia because he 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 wants to somehow manipulate events in order to get uh, the the soul of uh, young Olivia Desmond, and and ultimately uh, uh, Amanda Amanda Waller shows up because what they discover and there's there's actually some some there's some de- decent character moments here because. Uh, Starfire and uh, well, the Titans themselves are quite upset to learn that there's another body that's buried under the ruins of Titans Tower because they had the big battle there with Dark Crisis, and not all the bodies apparently all of the bodies have been found except for for one, and they they've found located a body under the rubble, and so they go to retrieve the body only to discover that they're expecting it to be one of their students, and so it's actually uh, some good emotional moments there that, that you know it's like it's like Marines you know recovering one of their own they you know the the Titans want to be there to recover their, their the body of one of their students. And uh, it ends up being, of all things, the king of Latavia. And they end up going to Latavia, where uh, where Nightwing discovers that the, that the real king of Latavia has been dead uh, for a few weeks already. So something is, something is awry, something's up. And somebody knocks out Nightwing and takes takes his place at the end of the issue. So we don't know exactly who that might be, but it, that now we have an imposter Nightwing infiltrating the Titans. And so it, it's re- really curious to see where, where this is going to go. But I'm intrigued. I kind of, I like this detour from the story. It was unexpected and I like it. Now, those of us who want, would like some more action on the, on the heart, 
what is it? The heartbreak? <laughs> What's the villain's name? <laughs> heartless. The heartless, heartless villain. Yeah. Right. A lot of people are complaining. They want, where's Heartless? And, and clearly Tom, Tom Taylor is playing it slow with, with Heartless. That might be for something we might have to wait for issue 125 uh, by, uh, on the pacing of this. But frankly, I'm enjoying, you know, if it's storytelling like this, I mean, like I say, I, I'm enjoying this, and I've said this before. I'm sounding like a broken record. I know the, the plotting on this sometimes is leaves much. It's not like particularly sophisticated plotting, but damn, there's always enough moments and fun moments that the plotting is enough, and and it's more than made up for with the character moments that it keeps drawing me back into the story. And uh, as for the backup, I don't have much to say for the backup. I feel it's kind of. Uh, I don't know why we need two stories here. A story of Dick Grayson training John John Kent. I guess it's okay. I don't mind it. Uh, you know, a night at the circus seems a little bit derivative that we get. I didn't even know. I didn't even know there was circuses anymore. And they end up at a circus rescuing somebody who is practically. It's almost identical to like a young Dick Grayson, and they end up saving a trap. A, some trapeze kids from being, you know, with the rope being cut. It, it's, it's almost like it's so reminiscent of Dick Grayson's origins. It's so close to the chest. It feels extremely tropey uh, and a little bit, you know, dare I say not, but you know, maybe not as uh, original as I would have thought, but you know, it's not bad, but I, I like the main story. I would, I would, I, I don't, I wish they wouldn't have a backup. I, I would just like more focus on the main story myself, but overall it's still a pretty good issue. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a fan of the I mean, I liked the dynamic between Dick and John. You're right. The the action the setup for them is completely derivative. It feels completely derivative. But yeah, even though I enjoy that interaction between these two, you know, the sons of the world's finest, as it were, if I had my preference, if you want to do this and do a one shot so I can buy it if I want and I don't have to if I don't. Yeah, I'm still not a fan of the backups in these in these DC books. So, and as far as yeah, who who that might be that knocked out Nightwing? Who you know who is it that is that Neron has recruited? All we know is the Grinning Man, right? That's what we're told coming right. next issue, the Grinning Man, and he does have a Nightwing even asks when she's he she whoever it is is doing the autopsy. Why are you smiling? Oh, I love a mystery. Can't help but grin. <laughs> And then later knocks out Nightwing, takes his form, walking into the portal with the other Titans. Um, and yeah, still can't keep that grin off off their face. So, Okay, up next we have Wonder Woman number 796. Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan are the writers. I'm in K. Nahalapan on art. Jordi Blair on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, it does have a backup as, as it does. We're not going to talk about it other than to say it has it. The young Diana backup. You guys all know how we feel about it. The tone of these is just wildly disparate. Shouldn't be in there. We're not going to talk about, about any of the backup, but it is by written by Jordi Belair, art by Paulina Ganeshow, colors by Kendall Good and letters by Becca Carey. But the main story, uh, there, it's actually interesting in terms of there's some big events that happen here. Um, not least of which at, at the end when Hera kills Zeus. Well, Hera sets Zeus up to be killed by the wizard Shazam of all people. So turning the wizard Shazam into, I mean, it used to be the wizard Shazam was like this benevolent, 
old white guy who get you know gave Billy Batson his powers and over the years he's morphed now he's uh, you know a person of color which makes more sense you know coming from the Middle East obviously um, but for him to kill Zeus I mean we're talking out and out villainy here along with Hera and her you know manipulations and her machinations and whatnot so really leaning into this idea of the gods as they appear you know, petty with all the infighting and what have you and like classic Greek literature. Um, but for the wizard Shazam to stab Zeus in the back, uh, yeah, that I just, I didn't see that coming. So that, that was really interesting to me. Um, so whether or not that is going to have long-term consequences, whether or not it's going to stick, you know, I guess we'll still have to wait and see. So that was kind of the big, big takeaway for me. Um, in this issue other than there's just some great, there's just some great moments. Um, so I, I know we've been hard on Clunrad at times for kind of the pacing, what have you, but th- this I feel is one of their stronger issues just in terms of some great moments, some great action. Um, <laughs> seeing uh, Yara floor cut off Eros's hand was great. You know, she's he's holding her out the side of a building and, and wants to drop her, but just can't, you know, because supposedly he has actual feelings for her. And she's like, oh, I'll do it for you. And she pulls out his his own dagger and chops off his hand. So that was a crazy moment. And then as Eros is standing there, you know, trying to staunch the bleeding with his cloak, here comes Wonder Woman and just with a big crash and flies right into the building and sends him flying out the other side. So, again, I mean. As hard as we've been on Clune Red at times, this is action-packed, and this had some really, really great moments. And it was really enjoyable in terms of story structure and and those enjoyable moments and what have you. All that being said, uh, I've said many times, when it comes to Wonder Woman, the whole God aspect of her is the least interesting thing to me. I just I don't go in for Greek mythology. It's just I spent too much time immersed in it in college, and I'm over it, frankly, and I don't want have anything to do with it because much like magic which is also tied up in this the any of these gods can do anything at any time for any reason like and if you want to have like well why did they do that what's their motive well because they're gods and they're fickle and they'll just do anything to to because they're bored and they they're immortal and they do whatever you know there's no there's no predicting it um and so it it, it can lead to lazy writing in my mind um which, you know, like I said, having uh, the wizard Shazam stab Zeus in the back. So you could look at it one of two ways. Well, that's really interesting or it's so arbitrary and capricious. It certainly fits in with our history and what we know of, of the gods and, um, you know, all the, the fictions and myths and what have you. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. But again, you can't necessarily see it coming. You can think of that as a good thing. You can think of that as a bad thing because anything can happen at any time and does it matter because it's all going to get undone anyway. Um, so I, I, I'm of two minds about it, but for the most part, this was enjoyable because there was a ton of action. I thought the art was really strong and there were some really great moments. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to know your thoughts. I know you're, you're more of a fan of wonder woman and the gods aspect of it. So what do you think? Well, I'm a fan of wonder woman. I'm not a fan of the, I'm not a fan of her gods and, and you, you alluded to it. Uh, uh, if the gods were at least written consistently or at least were, were treated like 
the the terrorists and the villains that they were. And if Wonder Woman wasn't repeatedly humiliated by suggesting that she would worship these morons uh, and idiots uh, who, uh, even under Clunrad's scripts, are, are depicting Zeus as you know, you know, eating grapes and being frivolous, and and then Hera herself. And uh, I mean, anyways. But I digress. Clunrad's all Wonder Woman writers are basically, I guess, they're cursed to have to try to make sense of that that nonsense. But religion in comic books and mythology in comic books is always it's always a, a tricky thing. Uh, I although I will say for what it's worth, I think Marvel does it with Thor better than anyone. Uh, so you don't see Thor going around getting on his hands and knees worshiping a bunch of uh, <laughs> gods. He, 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 if they piss him off, he kicks them and he, he'll he'll kill him if he has to. Uh, Wonder Woman, of course, doesn't seem to want to do that. Uh, but kudos to Yellow, Yara 4 here for at least cutting off the hand of uh, Eros, which is interesting because I don't think Yara 4 has killed anybody yet. But I don't, even, I, I don't even think I've seen Yara 4 be violent yet, uh, let alone kill anybody. Yet here she's cutting off the hand of Eros, her former lover, uh, which I think, wow, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, especially if you're Yara 4. But... Eros here, he's dropping love bombs. <laughs> and I'm, I'm saying that and I'm being literal. He's dropping love bombs here. And the whole, the whole, the whole city streets, they're just like swarming Wonder Woman. And, and the narration here really tries to make Eros so powerful. I mean, I, I actually thought it was kind of comical. Eros weaponizes love. And uh, Eros and, and uh, gods fear him above all others. And I'm thinking to myself, Really? Is that really true? Do, do the gods really fear Eros above all others? I don't think they do. I mean, how many people really fear the god of love? The, the god of love, you know, the guy who's shooting hearts. I don't think they fear him all that much. But you know, whatever, I'll let that go. Uh, but I, I do. What's interesting here is uh, the many shortcomings that we got in the Wonder Girl series. We, we, we got some of the attempt to sort of put lipstick on the pig here because there's been a much needed conversation between Yara 4 and Eros because Eros, of course, manipulated Yara 4, I guess, arguably. Uh, Yara 4 was, you could say, seduced by him or at least felt it was in a relationship with Eros and that went awry. And of course, he basically wants her to, he, he invites her to Olympus with him to come join me and Hera. We're going to get all the people on the planet. We're going to force them to worship us. And then we're going to get all powerful. Uh, my, my problem with the storyline and the plot line in general is that it's very tropey. This has been done so many times before. More specifically, who cares? Like, in, in, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be a jerk when I say that, but just bear with me. Okay, so everybody worships the, the Greek gods again. If tomorrow everybody worshiped the Greek gods in the DC universe, how does that make them more powerful? Okay, so then they're more powerful. Then what, Hera? Then what? If Hera just wanted to be king of the gods or queen of the gods, well, okay, you got the wizard who killed, you got the wizard who killed Zeus at the end of this issue. Why don't you just have your, your, your queen, your queen of the gods now? So who cares if you're worshiped? I, I mean, like, I, I don't understand where this, you know, how, how is this, how is this power channeled from all this worship? And is it really worship if you're forcing people to worship you? Isn't that kind of defeating the purpose? Isn't that the total opposite of worship? It, it, the whole thing just seems wonky to me. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand the motivation that Hera has here. Now, just a, a, some backup here, I got to say, in Lazarus Planet, we once were God's one shot that came out two weeks ago. That's Lazarus Planet. We were once God's one shot. 
in in the in the story by uh, by Josie Campbell called the price the price of eternity. In that issue, the wizard, the rock of eternity, got uh, and ends up being encapsulated in young Billy Batson, and that and that cut off the wizard from his power. So the wizard doesn't have all his power because it's in the rock of eternity, which is somehow within the soul of Billy Batson, and. It's in that issue where the wizard states that it's the reins of Lazarus have shown me the way. So this, so it's reasonable to conclude based on his comments in Lazarus Planet that the wizard here has been infected by the Lazarus reign and that's what's caused him to maybe become this evil version of himself and caused him to literally, it would appear, murder Zeus. And um, what's interesting is I'm not sure what Harris' plans were because it presumably it just rained a couple days ago or just finished raining. So I don't think she ever had the wizard on her side prior to that. So I'm not, I'd be curious what to, to know what, what Harris plan was before the wizard suddenly showed up and what prompted him to go to the Greek gods. But hopefully that'll be explained in Lazarus war of the gods, which is, which is a revenge of the gods, which is coming up. So I am intrigued. I am more intrigued now, finally with a wonder woman, isk storyline that i've ever have been in 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 recent memory so this was called before the storm so i am intrigued with this i i want to see where it's going i've got all kinds of issues with the gods and what have you i mean bear in mind wonder woman is to blame for half of this she for nonsensically decided to resurrect them for reasons which made no sense i mean i don't know she she resurrects them and then she wonders why they act like they've always acted like really that's i mean come on like that's sort of like yeah. having kids and then wonder why they're they act like kids i mean i mean that kind of goes with the territory but whatever <laughs> and then uh, also, you know what yeah, it always makes me think when Wonder Woman complains about how the gods act. It always makes me think of the line in the like I, it's some classic horror movie. I can't remember which one it is where they say the calls coming from inside the house. <laughs> Wonder Woman, the calls coming from inside the house. What did you expect? Exactly, not- exactly. And we, I should say, there's another wild card here, and that is Hippolyta. Hippolyta is now a god herself, and she's a god on Olympus, and so. Hippolyta presumably is trying to fight against the machinations of Hera. And does is Hippolyta aware that the wizard is now involved? So hopefully we'll see Hippolyta's actions or see how, how what her involvement is as this story moves forward. But uh, overall, this is uh, one of the more, finally one of the more intriguing Wonder Woman issues that I've seen in a while. And uh, I still, I, I hope something comes of the storyline with uh, Revenge of the Gods and... Uh, you know, we'll see. I, I still got some issues with Wonder Woman, but this was one of the better issues. So I will give yeah. I will give Clunrad some some credit there, and and I really did enjoy the art by Amankea Nahupan and Jordi yeah, Belair in the colors. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, recently, we saw that uh, Hippolyta had a chance to be resurrected and chose to stay with the gods to fight on behalf of her daughter. Well, yeah. she kind of dropped the ball based yeah. on everything <laughs> Diana's been going through lately so uh all right last book we're going to talk about in detail is catwoman number 52 it's from uh, writer tinny howard sammy bowsery on art vicente fuentes does the inks veronica gandini on colors and lucas gatoni on letters this one really focuses on um dario and uh what's her first name eco 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 yeah eco hasagawa yeah. Um, even to the point where 
uh, Eco is invited back into the, that group of five crime families along with Black Mask and she's talking to Dario and she's like, oh, they invited the cat in. They don't realize that Eco is, is Catwoman right now with Selena Kyle being in prison. So half the story focuses on that. The other half of the story focuses on Selena and what she's trying to build, this team that she's trying to build for what reasons we don't know. But while she's in prison, she's recruiting other criminals and she's she's still taking the death uh of valmont very very hard even to the point where she argues with her lawyer that it's her, her fault lawyer's like no it's clear based on their bodies that these people were you know were killed in the blast and blaming it all on punchline for setting the explosive at ace chemicals and for whatever reason selena she just has that guilt trip where she wants to take responsibility for it so i have a feeling that it's a little bit of an act but what doesn't necessarily make sense is why she's putting that act on, even when she's just narrating for us. Um, so maybe it's not an act. Maybe she really does feel that she, you know, is responsible to some extent. So if that's the case, what exactly is she planning? Cause part of it feels like, you know, she's allowed herself to be captured and go to prison, go to Blackgate as a punishment, as a penance. Maybe she's setting some, something up for after when she feels like she's, you know, served her time basically, or, or made up for what she did wrong. Um, so it's intriguing. It's intriguing. The art by Basri, I thought was, it, it's not his best. It, it felt a, not necessarily rushed, but it just didn't feel as dynamic as his art has for me in the past. Everything kind of felt like medium distance, you know, everything's like a medium setup shot. There wasn't really anything like visually to grab you. Um, the storytelling is fine and the characterization again, fine. Um, but I, I mean, I've seen Basri do some fantastic art in the past and this just wasn't, wasn't quite that. So maybe, maybe it's just a matter of him finding his footing on, uh, on these characters. I mean, with the exception of there's one scene where Eco and Dario and his Tomcat, um, persona are kind of jumping down toward, uh, toward us, you know, jumping down on the page. Other than that, everything was kind of paint by the numbers from the, from an artwork perspective, but yeah, a little bit of a setup issue. Curious to see where it's headed. Um, I do feel like from that, those kind of uneven paced issues that we had in the beginning from Tinny feels like she's finding her footing uh, because that was another thing. I, I thought that the pacing in this one was excellent, very uh, consistent. So what were your thoughts on it? Well, I, I think I think I agree with you when you you were you were I think posing a question, and that is, you know, is something else going on here uh, with Selena? There is clearly the the lawyer that shows up tells Selena like there's literally no evidence that you killed Valmont. I mean, the evidence would suggest the explosion killed Valmont. He, she says to her, it seems clear that the explosion killed them both. And then Selena says, you weren't there. Uh, and, and she says the explosion wasn't your fault. So the lawyer's basically telling her that, look, you're going to get off here. And, and to be, we got to remember that Selena refi- re- earlier had refused like Bruce's lawyers. Cause I mean, Br- Bruce could give her the Bruce Wayne could give her the top lawyers that, that she needs. And so then the question, I mean, why is she there? And so it's quite clear, at least I think it's clear that she's there to recruit 
uh, members uh, for a cr- recruit a new crew. And that's what exactly what she's she's done here. She's in jail on purpose. She's actively resisting her lawyer telling her that I can get you out of here. I mean, it's ridiculous unless Selena has the plan of recruiting a lot of the people that are in this uh, that are that her her former her her cellmates. And in fact, she actually knows uh, quite a bit about them. So it's obvious, it becomes clear in this issue that Selena knows much more about her cellmates uh, and her pres- his, her fellow prisoners than she let on. She knows that some of them are metahumans. She, so, she knows some of their skill sets. And so she's there and she's actually teaching them. She wants to teach them how to steal, how to get away with things, how to do things. And I guess prison is a good training ground for that if i mean if you're the world's greatest thief and you want to train other thieves what better training ground than a top security prison where you're being tested every single day and and that maybe is selena's thinking and then once that once that training is complete selena because selena was even put in solitary confinement in this issue and she she literally escaped to go train her her, her fellow prisoners and so clearly she could escape at any time and she doesn't legally she could be released at any time but by the look by the by the words of her own lawyer. So clearly she has, she's got an agenda of being there to recruit others. Maybe this is, we talk a lot about a Batman family. Maybe we're going to be getting a Catwoman family. And that, this is the beginning of a Catwoman family. That seems to be the new norm. You know, we got Batman family, Spider-Man family. Iron, every, every hero has a family. Catwoman needs more of a family. Catwoman has her alley cats in Gotham City. Maybe, maybe she just wants to have her own group of thieves that are un- unique unto her own. And maybe that's what this, maybe, maybe this ultimately is what Teeny Howard is going to set up or is trying to set up. And what I think that is the case, the way that Teeny Howard has gone about it here. I think it lacks a little bit of verisimilitude and it's a little bit wonky. Uh, we'll see how she nails the landing on the story arc. Or maybe, I'm, maybe I've am maybe i read this completely wrong. I'd be curious to know what other people think about that. But uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this is all going to end up with, uh, with uh, Tomcat and um, Eco as Catwoman. Because uh, ultimately, at some point, Selena is going to be released. And so what's going to happen then? So anyways... I'm I'm very interesting this interested to see how this is going to end. Yeah, I I'm been up and down with Catwoman during the Tinny Howard run, but yeah, this is definitely a uh, issue that's on the upswing. So uh all right, well that's the last single issue we're going to talk about in detail. There is one other single issue out this week. Uh Harley Quinn the animated series Legion of Bats number 5 is out then in terms of collected editions at DC, we have Detective Comics Volume 1, The Neighborhood Trade Paperback. So this is starting to collect the uh, Mariko Tamaki run. Uh, this particular issue can, uh, or collection collects uh, Detective Comics 1034 through 39. That's where we get introduced to Mr. Worth, if his daughter is killed, and the whole, this whole idea of the, the parasite and, and what have you, Mayor Nakano and the, all the anti-vigilante sentiment that's running through uh, Gotham. So it was a pretty strong story. Uh, Dan Mora does the art. So that's definitely a plus. Uh, there's also the Joker volume three. This finishes up the Joker series from James Tynan, Giuseppe Camincoli art. So that's issues 10 through 15. And then there's also a justice league international omnibus volume one hardcover. 
So this is collecting the stuff from Justice League International way back in the 90s with uh, obviously Demetrius and Giffen and um, Kevin McGuire. So you've got Justice League, that Justice League series that spun out of Legends, issues one through six, Justice League International, which is what it became. Maxwell Lord won't have you seven through 25 justice league America 26 through 30. That was when they had two books They had justice league America and justice league international justice league annual one justice league international two and three justice league Europe one through six and suicide squad 13. So that is classic, classic stuff. If you're a fan, you want an omnibus form it's out this week. And then finally uh, the birds of prey, the 90 series that ran for over hundred issues has uh, a trade paperback coming out that collects the end of the series. Uh, so that's issues 113 through 127. So all of those are out this week if you're looking for collections. Uh, in the meantime, getting back to current books, uh, we think we know what your pick is for <laughs> Book of the Week for DC Rocky, but you want to make it official? Well, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm so torn because I love two of them. I loved, I loved Bat I loved the Clayface issue, Batman One by Day Clayface. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to give it to John Ridley because I think the guy's faced an uphill battle with DC on multiple levels. So I'm going to have to go with, uh, I'm going to go with uh, GCPC, uh, GCPD, the blue wall, number five. Yeah. You know, so I, I think I probably would give my nod to that as well. If you hadn't picked it, but since you picked it, I'll pick something else. Uh, I'm going to go with deceased. Uh, again, just on the strength of those character moments that Tom Taylor gives us with, <laughs> with Lobo at the beginning. So humorous, the poignant moments with Superman and Kyle Rayner talking about the death of John Stewart and Kilowog and Kilowog's whole planet. And then obviously the, the moment of the year for me so far, Alfred Pennyworth becoming Spectre. Uh, <laughs> that, that just, yeah, that was so good. That was like a holy shit moment for me. Um, so I'll give my nod to, uh, to Tom Taylor, Trevor Harrison and the whole creative team for uh deceased war of the undead gods. So uh, that's going to do it. Got anything you want to tease? Coming up this week? Uh, well, I have my indie indie review uh, this week uh, with uh, Jason of the Get Fresh crew at uh, Weird Science. Uh, we're going to be reviewing a number of uh, mostly image comics this week. I think Art Brute number three and uh, Nightclub number three as well and probably two or three others. We'll, we'll see. So uh, that'll come out in the next few days. What about yourself? Yeah, so have uh, another creator-owned spotlight for Zoop coming up sometime later this week. Had one last week for um, an adult-oriented magic horror romance called Magic Necklace that's out there if you want to listen to it. Um, yeah, trying to get back on track, get more content out. I've just been so busy with other things, travel and whatnot, but hoping to get more content out for you guys soon. I haven't even been able to do the new comic Wednesdays for the last few weeks. Not only because Marvel's been coming in exceptionally late, but I just I'm so far behind on my reading, and it's like once you fall behind, <laughs> trying to get caught up is that much harder. So uh, anyway, but we appreciate as always you guys listening. If you uh, are listening to audio only and you haven't gone and subscribed to Rocky's channel on YouTube, where you can see our smiling faces and check out the artwork as we talk about this, please do so. You know what to do when you go to YouTube: subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave comments. Um, 
like the video, all that sort of stuff. Conversely, if you stumbled across this on YouTube and you're curious about the other content we put out on the Comic Source audio only, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. Hope you guys all enjoyed the DC books this week, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.